Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Laura Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today is June 8th, 2021, and it's my pleasure to have with me Elizabeth Surkov. Elizabeth is a friend of mine who I admire tremendously. She is a doctoral student in political science at Princeton University. Her research is based primarily on a large network of contacts she cultivates via fieldwork on the ground in the Middle East, including in Syria and Iraq. She is also a research fellow at the Forum for Regional Thinking, a progressive Israeli-Palestinian think tank based in Jerusalem, and New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policy. Elizabeth has worked as a consultant with the International Crisis Group, the Atlantic Council, and the European Institute for Peace, among other places. Uh, her work has appeared in the New York Times, Foreign Policy Magazine, New York Review of Books, Haaretz, War on the Rocks, The New Republic, The New Humanitarian, among other outlets. And Elizabeth is proficient in Hebrew, Russian, and several Arabic dialects and modern standard Arabic. Um, she is enormously impressive, and we are really so honored to have you with us today. I know you have a very busy travel and work schedule, so thank you. Um, Elizabeth, I have been dying to get you on the podcast. I have so many questions for you. Um, we're going to try to cover a lot of ground in a relatively short time. Um, I will tell for our listeners that the through line in the question, these are not random questions, the through line is extremism and illiberalism and how that is how that is the arc of that through through the Middle East as a region. So I'm going to start focusing on Israel and then we're going to zoom in and zoom out and then zoom back in. So starting with Israel. And anyone who follows you on Twitter knows that you, you cover this stuff on a regular basis. You talk, you think about it, you write about it. Um, you have great analysis. So I want you to offer us some insights into Israeli society today and the extremist forces that are now so clearly in view. And when I say clearly in view, we're talking about the results of the last election, which brought Kahanis into Knesset. For people who don't know, Kahanis are followers of Rabbi Meir Kahane. It is an extreme, extreme political movement that was deemed racist um, by the state of Israel, and Meir Kahane was thrown out of the Knesset. This was back in the 80s. Um, and the two groups that he founded, Kah and Kahane Chai, or Kahane Chai as an offshoot, are both on the U.S. Um, foreign terrorist organization list. Um, but it's also true if you're looking at what happened after that election, when followers um, of these Kahanist, um, these people who are following the, the footsteps of Meyer Kahane descended on Jerusalem during Ramadan to deliberately stoke conflict. That's where you saw, you know, death to arrows, people marching in the streets. Um, or it's true whether you're talking about the organized violence that we saw during the last Gaza war inside the Green Line. And there was violence on, on both sides, no question, but the organized violence inside Israel was striking. And in many cases involved, again, these extremist forces coming in from the outside or forces that had grown into the so-called mixed cities of Israel and you saw violence. And the last example I'll point to is maybe counterintuitive for some people, but it's the death threats that we're seeing against the right wing MKs and political leaders for their agreeing to uh, displace <laughs> Bibi Netanyahu as the head of the Israeli government. We're also having death threats against some left-wing legislators as well, but that's a different thing. But here you're talking about something that feels very much like the Rabin era, right? So can you weave all that together and explain what is happening um, inside Israel today? So I think that the violence that uh, we witnessed during the Gaza conflict and the threats that we're seeing now are the result of kind of three main processes. Uh, the first is uh, basically the violence that existed in the West Bank 
kind of infiltrating Israel proper. Much of the violence that was carried out in mixed cities such as uh, Lod and Ramleh, uh, Batyam as well, uh, there was an attempt to march at Jaffa but was stopped, so the violence occurred in Batyam, uh, was carried out by uh, settlers who came uh, uh, from uh, West Bank settlements and outposts that are illegal even under Israeli law. This, this includes hilltop youth, Norag uh, Bahot, and also uh, settlers kind of from the mainstream of settler society. Uh, there was a major contingent uh, from Itzhar, and they basically carried out pogroms that they carry out regularly in the West Bank, just they did so uh, in uh, Israel proper. Uh, and uh, Similarly to what we're seeing in the in the West Bank, uh, where IDF soldiers stand by and do nothing to stop the violence, there are multiple videos of uh, the Israeli police uh, doing nothing as uh, basically Jews attack um, Palestinian citizens uh, of Israel. Um, so, so that's one trend that is very clear, and we see also the that there are multiple instances, uh, documented ones on video, showing Israeli police carrying out basically collective punishment against areas that witness protests or riots. Uh, so Jaffa, so East Jerusalem, uh, where you see completely empty streets and you see stun grenades and smoke grenades being fired. Uh, again, this is something that is just straight up taken from uh, the West Bank, uh, a practice known as displaying presence, Havganat Nuchichut, or White Nights, um, you know, basically preventing Palestinians from sleeping. So we're seeing basically, you know, and this is very natural, this is something that was predicted when the occupation first started of the West Bank that in Gaza, that it will bleed into Israel proper, and this is what we're seeing. Another trend is um, very clear, it has to do with Netanyahu, and basically his uh, the efforts that he made politically to empower the Kahanis, not because he likes them so much, but because he needs them uh, to be able to form a government. This is why he convinced Smotrich to form, uh, you know, a, a, a joint umbrella uh, and, and a party and, and run with them for the Knesset to ensure basically that Itamar Ben-Gvir becomes uh, um, a member of Knesset. So basically we have for the first time since 1988, representation of the Kahanis movement, as you stated, inside the Knesset. Um, uh, ben Gvir has been convicted on, I think, eight different charges, uh, including um, uh, inciting for uh, terrorism and violence and uh, support for a terrorist group. This is, the, the, the group is Kach. It's, it's, it's a, as you mentioned, it's a, it's a group that has been, is out outlawed, uh, not just in the US, it's not just designated as a terror group in the US, but also in Israel proper. Um, so uh, the Netanyahu has done a lot to ensure basically that this party that was always so marginal and small that it failed to cross the electoral threshold, he basically allowed them to enter the parliament and gain this uh, powerful voice and powerful platform. And therefore they played, a, uh, we know, a major role in stoking up tensions, uh, in uh, cities uh, throughout the period of violence that we saw, the clashes between uh, Jews and Palestinians, uh, citizens of Israel, they participated both uh, as Lehava, which is one group uh, connected to the Kahanis, as well as La Familia, which is the, are the ultras of Beitar Gushalayim, a group that has been infiltrated deeply and now essentially controlled by Kahanis. Um, so, so that's Just another... to clarify, the ultras is, is linked to a, an Israeli soccer team. Right, uh, Bitar, uh, uh, 
Bitar Jerusalem, which, uh, you know, Bitar is a revisionist Jewish movement started by Jabotinsky, but the, that fan club is uh, basically uh, controlled by racist, extremely racist elements. Uh, they, uh, you know, protested against their own team when it, uh, um, when basically they hired uh, two Chechen Muslim players. Uh, they take pride in it being, you know, the most racist uh, country, the most racist uh, team in the country. Um, so that uh, group has been involved in violence against uh, both leftist Jews and uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel before. And they uh, played a prominent role in uh, the rioting that we saw the attacks on Palestinian citizens of Israel. And then another trend that we're seeing in Israel that um, very much helps explain both the death threats that we're seeing uh, and, um, and also the environment in which much of the violence was uh, organized is kind of the rise of right-wing media, um, very much owing to Netanyahu's efforts to um, threaten and uh, uh, is Israeli media independence uh, to insert right-wing um, uh, channels into the mainstream, to insert right-wing journalists into the mainstream. Um, and um, uh, those individuals, uh, as, as well as uh, his own son and Netanyahu himself, are using uh, social media in particular, in addition to those right-wing uh, journalists, I mean, journalist is not even a right term, more like propagandist, to basically uh, incite against um, anyone who stands in Netanyahu's way to maintaining power, whether they're right wing or left wing. And um, Netanyahu personally um, previously kind of shied away from being explicit in his uh, calls for violence and his incitement against um, uh, anyone who is standing in his way, but he has become much more explicit. He's refusing to apologize, he's refusing to condemn really um, uh, quite extreme language that is being used by supporters, by his own son, uh, to target uh, both the left and the right who are uniting to unseat uh, Netanyahu. So those are kind of the three major trends that I think you know, are the reason we witnessed this unprecedented level of violence and incitement to the point that the Shin Bet has come out, the head of the Shin Bet has come out and said, you know, politicians need to cool down with this incitement because this can lead to you know, another political murder. Yeah, I mean, and this is a, another direction we could go, but I, I wanna move on. But I will say that if we have time, maybe at the end, there's a lot of people in the United States watching this thinking this feels a lot like the end of the Trump era with the, you know, which led to January 6th and all of that, I would say that it, you know, given the, the sort of overhanging memory of the Rabin assassination, it, it has particular, um, there's reason to be particularly concerned. It, it's, it's striking seeing images of someone like Naftali Bennett, you know, in, in the kafia, the way that they right. did Rabin. It's, it, it, right. you know, politically, it's absurd to right. say that he's a leftist. But I mean, that's the kind of imagery that was, you know, the glide path to his assassination. Um, which is something I think, you know, a lot of Israelis have either, it, it hasn't been sort of dealt with politically. Um, so go ahead, yes. Yeah, and, and I, I, much of the incitement by Netanyahu is also targeting the media, similarly to what Trump did. But in the US, uh, because uh, the media is quite strong, uh, and because the population, you know, can stay evenly split relatively between, you know, Republicans and Democrats, um, the media kind of held its ground. And actually, throughout the Trump presidency, was more explicit in calling out his racism and, and etc. In Israel, no, it's the other way around. This actual incitement uh, against the media 
um, which is related to Netanyahu's corruption trial much more than anything else. Um, you know, he wants to undermine the faith that Israelis have in media reporting, which, you know, expose much of this corruption that is now being on trial for. Um, and Israel is actually working in silencing uh, journalists who are afraid to be explicit, who are afraid to speak uh, kind of openly about Netanyahu, about his role in, in the incitement. Um, so, so it's actually been uh, quite effective in getting them to self-censor because they fear losing uh, uh, their audience, which in Israel is, you know, most Israelis uh, are center-right. Um, and, um, um, and also, you know, uh, likely a fear of just straight up being uh, killed or assaulted. Um, you know, a prominent Israeli uh, presenter on television, Unique Levy, was also pictured in a cafe, similar to what, how, what was done to Robin before his assassination. Right. And we saw death threats this week against uh, Tammy Zenberg. So it's a, right. a, a MK from from the left. Um, so I want to move on to a related issue. Everything's related here, which is Jerusalem. And I, I want to talk about this specifically. We've had Palestinian voices talking about this. I want you to talk about this a little bit. So obviously some Israeli officials and defenders of Israel here in the U.S. as well insist that what is going on in Sheikh Sharan Silwan is nothing more than a real estate dispute, right? This is just, this is just real estate. It's just business. And anyone who's trying to intervene clearly doesn't understand that. And, and we're here at this moment when, based on the attorney general in Israel yesterday declining to intervene on the Sheikh Jarrah case, um, which I guess maybe wasn't surprising, but is still really um, disappointing, um, it, we're on the verge of seeing a lot of Palestinians essentially ejected from their homes, having their land taken, and we're seeing two neighborhoods of East Jerusalem that are Palestinian neighborhoods for hundreds of years being turned into Jewish neighborhoods populated by the most right-wing ideological Israelis that exist. So, in, you know, I want you to talk about this question of the real estate dispute. And you are someone who understands the settlement movement really well. You have personal experience with this. I mean, one thing that's, that's striking to me every time someone says it's just a real estate dispute to defend why it's okay to do this, I think of all the settlers I know who would disagree. <laughs> Right. This is not a real estate dispute. This is what it, what is it that is driving these groups to want to displace Palestinians from these areas? And how has that agenda, which was extremely marginal, right, in the seven in the 80s, it was a marginal agenda. But in 2021, it's now come into the mainstream to where we are today, where you know, this is just happening. And it's basically, you know, get over it. It's a real estate dispute. Right. So, I mean, obviously, the claim that it's a real estate dispute is ridiculous. It, we could say that it's a real estate dispute if there was a situation of legal parity between Jews and Arabs or Jews and Palestinians, and both had laws that are, um, you know, that give the same rights to, to both people. In that case, yes, we, we basically would have a dispute, but this is absolutely not the case. Uh, Palestinians who lost their property uh, you know, uh, during the Nakba, cannot reclaim that property, while Jews who lost their, their property in 48 uh, and, you know, purchased it uh, before the establishment of the State of Israel, can now go back and sue. Uh, in addition to the fact that uh, the Sheikh Jarrah case and many other cases of purchases of, of housing, of land, etc., uh, entails just deceptive, pro uh, you know, practices that are being used by uh, organizations uh, uh, of the settler movement. Um, 
the, the the process of the the settlement of Jerusalem, I think, is uh, part of an overall project of the settler movement to settle in places, and uh, I think you, Lara, know more about this than I do, of settling in places that would make a two-state solution impossible. To basically, they want this kind of interaction and intermixing to basically prevent kind of the possibility of the emergence of a Palestinian state with uh, Jerusalem as its capital. If there are so many Jews in areas that are supposed to go to the Palestinians, it will be harder uh, to execute. And we see this pattern also in, for example, the construction of Ariel, the establishment of outposts throughout the West Bank. Um, and I think that that project has largely been successful, right? So I think, um, you know, on your podcast, um, it the, the conversations that you've been having, um, it, it's very clear that the, the narrative that the, uh, discourse is shifting. There is a recognition that the two-state solution is increasingly unrealistic. Now, the solution that is advocated, therefore, by uh, settlers uh, is either maintaining of the status quo or a full-on apartheid reality with annexation of the of the West Bank uh, without granting any rights uh, to the Palestinians, or a solution that is even more extreme, one advocated by Kahanists and people slightly uh, more moderate even than Kahanists is the idea of transfers, the idea of ethnic cleansing uh, of Palestinians uh, forcibly to uh, forcibly or sometimes through economic inducement uh, to uh, Jordan to other uh, to other areas. And the, the, the practices of the state of Israel in Jerusalem are kind of very much in line with this quite extreme transferist ideology because of the loss of residency that uh, Palestinians from East Jerusalem, if they move to the West Bank or if they uh, go to study abroad, uh, after a few years, they lose their residency in uh, East Jerusalem. So there is clearly a project in place uh, of displacement and this, um, and, you know, uh, changing the demographic character of Jerusalem. Um, so to say that this is a real estate dispute is utterly ridiculous. All of this is happening as part of a larger political project of the state of Israel, uh, working hand in hand with uh, private uh, NGOs, NGOs sometimes that are supported by the state uh, to displace Palestinians from their homes. I think it's interesting what you said when you started out the question of legal parity. And, you know, one thing I struggle to get people to understand sometimes, you know, they say, well, Israel's democracy, there's laws. And I, I, I've really tried to focus people on the distinction between rule of law and rule by law. And rule by law is relevant to this conversation because extremism, illiberalism, authoritarianism, rule by law, which is where laws are made to serve the goals of the people in charge at the expense of people who are disfavored, that is how more authoritarian governments work everywhere. Um, you know, so, someone was talking about, well, you, this, is, this is a law. And I'm like, well, you know, in the West Bank, it's the law that it, settlers can't go in and take Palestinian private land and build houses on it. But when they do, Israel changes the law to let them keep it. <laughs> right? Again, rule, rule by law. So speaking of authoritarianism, let's zoom out a little bit. Um, obviously, you've done a great deal of research, more than really anyone I know, um, on Syria, on the ground in Syria, and on movements for democratic change in the Middle East and North Africa. You've traveled and worked in Iraq, Syria, Jordan, Turkey for research, and you maintain a network of contacts in all these places, including among activist leaders and in Syria, people who are actually engaged 
in in what is going on on the ground for years now, um, which started as a civil war and has turned into something much worse. So based on all that, <laughs> um, so does violence, repression, authoritarianism inside these countries that surround Israel, how does it relate? Does it relate to what's happening in Israel-Palestine? And, and if the answer is yes, somehow it relates, can you explain how? You know, how do the dynamics in the broader Middle East, like the civil war in Syria, the fight over authority and governments, efforts to suppress democracy and demands for minority rights and human rights and civil rights and all that in Arab countries, and the Kurdish struggle um, and the rise in refugees. How does that affect what happens in Israel, Palestine? Or does so, it? No, I mean, uh, for sure it is connected and connected in multiple ways. I think uh, first, um, a trend that we're seeing uh, throughout the, the, the Middle East is um, the fear that many minorities have of uh, democratic rule, which they perceive will empower uh, forces that will oppress them. Uh, we're seeing this very clearly uh, in Syria, where the Halawis are a tiny minority who are in charge and fear very much the emergence of any kind of democratic change in the country, uh, where they fear that they, they will be the ones paying the price. Um, we see it in Iraq, for example, where I've interviewed members of many minorities, where they genuinely fear the emergence of uh, kind of a strong democracy that, and they see the fall of Saddam as kind of a catastrophe uh, because there was a strong authoritarian leader representing a minority sect um, that uh, protected them, who protected them against you know, the hordes. Um, and I think that, um, I mean, we see this mentality also in uh, upper class elites that are, you know, not driven by ethnic fear or sectarian fears, but by class fears of the unwashed masses, etc. Uh, we see it among Copts in uh, Egypt who are strong backers of Sisi. And I think we see it in Israel. Israel is basically a country of a minority, a Jewish minority in the middle of the Middle East, which is, you know, uh, mostly Muslim, and there is a strong fear of, of democracy in this region. So very early when the Arab Spring just started, before you know, it turned into a horror show, there were immediately fears in Israel, which I think in hindsight we can understand that some of them were quite justified, but there was this immediate paranoia about, oh, uh, this is going to you know, transcend from kind of an Arab Spring into an Islamist winter. There's always this fear of democracy in the Middle East. And this is why I think we see this um, kind of a very robust connection between Israel and authoritarian regimes, particularly in the Gulf, that are also very fearful of democracy, um, whether it comes in the form of Islamism or liberalism. Both uh, camps are punished, both camps are persecuted, uh, dissidents from both camps end up in, in prisons. Uh, and they end up in prison oftentimes owing to um, software uh, sold by Israeli companies to these authoritarian regimes with the approval of the Israeli Ministry of Defense. This is a very important point. This, it's true that the ones selling are private companies, but because uh, th these are highly sophisticated and powerful tools, they are subject to approval, uh, basically export controls by the Israeli MOD. So any such software that ended anywhere to spy on Jamal Khashoggi, 
before his, uh, you know, brutal murder. Uh, spy on other uh, dissidents in, in Bahrain, in the UAE, in, in Saudi Arabia. All of this was done with the approval of the Israeli MOD. So we're seeing basically uh, kind of the Middle East being divided uh, between uh, kind of two major authoritarian axes. Uh, one that uh, includes Israel, the Emirates, uh, Egypt, um, uh, the, the monarchies of the region in, in general. Uh, and the other one is uh, kind of the, the so-called axis of resistance, which is just as uh, oppressive and aggressive in some ways even more includes the, the Assad regime, which has slaughtered hundreds of thousands of, of civilians, uh, Hezbollah, which intervened uh, in the war in, uh, in Syria, helped kill and besiege Syrians, Iran obviously interfering in, in uh, supporting Bashar uh, in Syria, um, supporting militias that are hunting down activists in Iraq, uh, and uh, suppressing protests in Lebanon. And basically the people who, uh, are, are left to pay the price of all of this are the, the populations, which are suffering really under the yoke of two kind of uh, oppressive axes. Um, and there really isn't uh, kind of a, a, a real power in the region that is supportive of uh, democratization. And in that kind of context, there's no surprise that uh, the, 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 the activists of the region, the, the um, people who are yearning for something different, for, for, for some political change, are really struggling uh, to, to make any advances when really this, the, the, everything is stacked up against them. They essentially have uh, no allies except each other, uh, trying to share knowledge, trying to help one another. Uh, but this is hardly enough when facing such repressive regimes uh, that enjoy uh, international backing uh, as well. Listening to you, I mean, it's, it's very striking to me, the, the idea that there's almost the opposite of a, a virtuous cycle here where illiberalism in the region is in many ways, um, it, it, it is, it is I don't want to say it's fueling, but it's certainly consistent with growing illiberalism in Israel and growing illiberalism in Israel is literally supporting the greater liberalism in the region. And I mean, just to observations, I mean, I'm old enough to remember um, Israeli politicians as recently as not long ago, demanding that Palestinians be, you know, perfect European Democrats, small d, before they are, you know, before they deserve and have earned a state of their own. Um, and, and, you know, still to this day, you can find a press release, no doubt today from some, you know, organization in the US proclaiming Israel as the region's only democracy, which has a certain ironic flavor to it when you have now Israel through normalization deals and other things actively um, playing a role in, in, in preventing democracy or, or undermining the forces that are fighting for it other places. It's, it's really quite depressing. I'm curious um, if you have any observations about the normalization trends, because obviously that was the, the Trump administration says, you know, that was their biggest accomplishment in the Middle East. They brought peace to all these countries that weren't actually at war. Um, but, you know, exactly. it, 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 is a, it is an accomplishment, right? That exists. There are now these normalization agreements. Um, and it seems by all, by all sort of indications that that's going to continue to be a priority for the Biden administration. It's politically, you know, easy, cost-free, gets you lots of benefits, and certainly in Congress, and it's obviously supported by Israel. Do you want to do you, you offer some observations about how those normalization trends either feed into this, um, this sort of 
illiberalist, illiberal um, love fest, um, or maybe if there's some other direction you see it going. So, uh, of course, this normalization is um, largely the result of this alignment uh, between Israel and uh, authoritarian regimes in the region, particularly monarchies. Um, that are deeply fearful of their population, deeply fearful of Iran, deeply fearful of political Islam, and all kind of uniting in one front um, uh, together to combat uh, these threats. And the initial uh, uh, warming of relations and cooperation between Israel and those countries really focused on security and intelligence sharing and uh, surveillance and hacking phones of activists, etc. And from there, they're now trying to build other things on top of it, such as, you know, civilian trade, uh, tourism, etc. So I think that that's obviously um, some, eventually the, the, the people who are paying the price uh, for this normalization obviously are Palestinians who lost a major playing card, one of the few that they had uh, in their hands. Um, and, uh, and also the citizens of, uh, of these regimes that are normalizing, which, First of all, there's now an additional issue that they cannot speak up against. Previously, they were free to express their views with regards to Israel if they were, uh, you know, largely um, negative towards Israel and supportive of Palestinian rights. Now they have to keep silent about that. But also, uh, you know, the transfer of technology uh, will just be made easier um, uh, to to those regimes to to hunt down uh, critics. Um, now, with, with regards to um, the, the, the normalization uh, itself, how it is playing out on the ground, I think that the recent, um, recent fighting uh, between Israel and the factions in Gaza and also the ongoing uh, you know, repression and plans to evict families from, from Sheikh Jarrah, um, we see a great deal of solidarity from uh, citizens of countries that normalize relations. So I uh, you know, always keep an eye on trending topics in the UAE, in Bahrain, in Saudi Arabia, in, in Jordan, in Egypt. And um, public sentiment is at least you know, as represented by these trending topics, but also polls that have been done uh, throughout the recent years show that there is actually quite limited support for normalization. Uh, the voices that support normalizations are the ones getting airtime on Israeli media, which loves these people, no matter how uh, you know completely marginal they are in their own societies, and obviously uh, the media outlets of these regimes who are trying to push uh, and legitimize uh, normalization. But we see that there's a great deal of solidarity uh, and sense of affinity with the Palestinians, with Gazans, um, and I don't think that that's about to change. At the same time, um, it is true that um, the Arab uprisings um, have focused um, people across the region on the oppression and corruption of their own regimes, which at times used the issue of Palestine to justify uh, all sorts of oppressive measures against their own population, such as emergency laws, etc. So there has been some change when it comes to Israel. Um, there is a sense that um, uh, you, you see it particularly, for example, among Syrians, even I heard this from Iraqis, that, uh, oh, we wish we were living under Israeli occupation, you know, things like that, because our own regimes are so much worse. But, you know, uh, of course, there, there are worse things in the world than Israeli occupation, uh, you know, a regime like Bashar's that uses chemical weapons against its own people. Obviously, that's, that's worse. Um, but overall, I would say that the general... Um, 
kind of public sentiment is very much in support of the Palestinians and their rights, despite the efforts of uh, Gulf regimes to uh, alter uh, public discourse uh, and the perceptions of, of their subjects. That's actually a great segue to my last question. And I, I will add as an observation, I mean, years of normalization, which were actually peace treaties with Jordan and Egypt, um, have done little to change public sentiment as well. I mean, the cold peace that Israelis, you know, have always complained about. Um, and there's lots of reasons for that. But it, 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 if that's an example, and those were, you know, peace treaties that, that dealt real benefits to both Jordan right. and Egypt, but for the people that the, the grassroots sentiment didn't change. I want to, as a last question, I want you to take out your crystal ball. I hate it when people ask me these questions, but I'm going to do it to you. Um, and I want to ask you what you see the future um, of these, what I see as extremist trends in Israel, where, where they go. We now have an incredibly fragile coalition taking power in theory. Um, and that coalition includes some extreme elements. It is going to be... Um, in power with in a Knesset that has the most extreme elements of any Knesset since the 80s, um, to the backdrop of um, a nation where Jewish Israelis seem largely untroubled by things like, oh, I don't know, since the, the violence in the mixed, mixed cities um, during the Gaza war, that almost everyone who's being arrested are Palestinian citizens of Israel, despite the fact that there was enormous amounts of violence um, by Jewish citizens. So where do you see those trends inside Israel going. And here's where I ask you for maybe offering some note of hope. Do you see any sort of off-ramp from the current trajectory in Israel that seems to be leading since really the early 90s um, towards ever greater illiberalism and extremism? So I think, um, I mean, it's, it's incredibly difficult to predict what will happen. I think there, is, um, there are genuine concerns now uh, about the possibility of another political murder or uh, attempted murder, which I think can change the dynamics quite a bit. Uh, you know, after Robin uh, was assassinated, uh, there was some reckoning uh, among the Israeli right. Uh, there was a sense that these people went too far and there were discussions inside the community. So that, for example, could really shift kind of the, the, the dynamics that we're seeing uh, on the ground now. Overall, I would say uh, I would agree with you. The trends are uh, incredibly troubling. Um, there is acceptance of incitement against uh, just anyone who stands in Netanyahu's way. Uh, really, the Likud party, which used to be a deeply ideological uh, movement, um, you know, we can disagree with the ideology, but it had some principles that it was maybe an odd combination of liberal principles and nationalism, but there was an ideology there, uh, you know, articulated by people like Jabotinsky, like Shamir, like Eldad, uh, that uh, now has really been transformed into kind of a personality cult of Netanyahu. And he is just losing it, you know, because he is, uh, you know, it's not just his political future is on the line, it's also his ability to shape Israel's law and order uh, institutions, judiciary, police, which will affect his, uh, you know, possibility of ended up in prison uh, for for the corruption charges that he's facing. Um, so, so we're in a very, very dangerous moment right now, uh, and and therefore it's a bit difficult to predict what will happen. I think there are some uh, notes uh, of uh, there are reasons to be optimistic. First of all. You know, even though the next coalition will 
not do anything to you know end the occupation. I think merely not having Netanyahu around as this dominant figure uh, who is you know actively inciting against different groups whenever he, it suits them and this mob, this mass of people who just follow what he says, I think that this is incredibly important. Uh, to not have a prime minister constantly inciting against the police, against the courts, against, uh, uh, you know, Arabs who support terrorism uh, when uh, when he tries to delegitimize uh, taking part in, in a government with the Arab members of Knesset as he's doing now. Um, so I think that's that's something that is positive. I think for all uh, citizens of Israel, Jews, uh, and Palestinians. Um, now, uh, another note of optimism is the fact that the next government will likely include uh, a, a Palestinian or Arab-Israeli party, uh, Ram. Uh, definitely, you know, not my cup of tea, an Islamist party, uh, deeply homophobic. Um, but um, I think that it um, may change dynamics in Israel uh, when you have uh, prime minister and parties, uh, like the members of this coalition, including people like Benny Gantz, like Naftali Bennett, like Yair Lapid, who previously, uh, you know, made political capital off of inciting against Arabs as well, or showing, you know, how strong they are against Arabs, against Palestinians, now having to justify sitting in a government uh, with that party. And because Netanyahu took that first step, uh, I think that this can have a very positive dynamic to relations between Israelis and Palestinians inside uh, Jewish Israelis and Palestinians. And I, uh, I so, to ask you a bonus question. Sure. Can you, I am struck by the fact that you had someone like Ayman Ode, who speaks like a member of Peace Now, right? This is a guy who speaks the language of coexistence. And I mean, you, you, if if you were trying to invent the, the, the absolute most reasonable, articulate partner um, amongst the Palestinian citizens of Israel, it would be Ayman Ode. And yet, you know, Israeli parties could not manage to make themselves go into coalition with him, but they're okay going into coalition with a misogynist, Islamist, homophobic party. I mean, explain that to me. Well, I mean, first of all, I think that uh, Ram is a good fit for the Islamist party, is a good fit for the current coalition and one that Netanyahu would form in the sense that he is kind of the, the whatever coalition is formed in Israel, it will likely now be this so-called change coalition or if a coalition had been formed by Netanyahu, it would have been dominated by forces of the right. So actually having an Islamist party in that kind of co coalition is a good fit. Um, but also, um, you know, Ram essentially, and I'm, I'm not judging and clearly had electoral success that indicates that uh, some people in the Palestinian public in Israel are interested in that kind of politics. They basically decided to behave as a sector. Basically, we just want our share. Uh, we just want our problems inside Israel addressed. Whereas uh, the joint list is, is much more of a political project. It has political demands that do not pertain merely to quality of life of Palestinians in Israel, but also issues pertaining to uh, ending the occupation, uh, certain policies, I'm sure, with regards to Gaza, etc. And this is something that the uh, you know, dominant Israeli parties, whether on the center, uh, soft center left, like Yair Lapid, or the right, are completely unwilling to countenance. So therefore, 
uh, I think it actually makes sense to have such a party that is very much focused on getting budgets, on, on, on getting a certain power inside the government to, to allocate funds and projects, et cetera, and set certain priorities, as opposed to a party that has kind of a, a, an ideological a program that they want to enact. I don't remember, I don't remember if it was you or someone else on Twitter who observed that in some ways, if you want to understand um, how they're behaving, you should look at Shas. They're, they're like right. behaving the way Shas behaves, but from the, the, the Palestinian sector, which is just fascinating. I'm not sure anyone could have, would, would have predicted that 20 years ago, that this would be the way that um, a Palestinian party finally enters um, into the mainstream of Israeli politics. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I think that I think that we're really seeing uh, kind of very uh, there's a, a there are significant developments within the Palestinian community in Israel of increasing economic integration um, and increasing desire to really participate in politics, um, and at the same time we're also seeing you know a great deal of frustration and anger and uh, growing criminality due to neglect due to lack of economic development of uh, Palestinian citizens in Israel uh, that we saw much of it, you know, manifest in, in the writing that took place and the attacks that took place against, uh, you know, Jewish businesses and homes uh, in several uh, cities uh, throughout the country. Which brings us back in our arc, I know an arc is not a circle, brings us back full circle to the issue of illiberalism and, and extremism. And, and really, I mean, I think, I think the next conversation I want to have with you will look, I want to dig in with you onto that question of sort of how, how does that growing um, integration, if it's in a race with the growing extremism in, in Israeli society, how, where does that end? Because there, these are two trends that actually contradict each other. But let's save that for our next conversation. Elizabeth, this was terrific. Thank you so much for joining me today. And thanks for sharing your insights with the foundation and with our listeners. There is so much more to dig into and unpack. And I guarantee we will be asking you to come back. Um, I also want to thank our listeners for tuning in and to remind people to subscribe to the Occupied Thoughts podcast. You can do that on iTunes, Spotify, or SoundCloud. That way you won't miss anything and you don't want to miss anything because we are putting up new content every week. You can find uh, all of this on our website also, www.fmep.org, where there'll be both the audio and a link to the video. So with that, I'm Lara Friedman, president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Thank you, Elizabeth Surkov, of coming to us from Israel. We are signing off now until the next episode of Occupied Thoughts. Thank you. My pleasure.